church, I want you to take your Bible this morning, and I want you to go with me to John chapter 19. It's going to be a few moments before we get to the actual text, but I want you to go ahead and, and turn to John 19 with me, okay? Last week, we uh, began a short three-week look at an event that changed the world. The events leading up to and after the crucifixion are collectively called the Passion of Christ. And while many people or films show it as really one event, the Passion of Christ is really a collection of events that altered world history and hopefully altered your life. In fact, if the Passion of Christ has not altered your world, then you have cause to be concerned about where you're going to spend eternity. I believe that when we hear the story of Jesus Christ, when we understand the story of Jesus Christ, when God, in a sense, turns on the light bulb of truth, and you realize everything that's involved in this passion story, and it becomes real to you, and you receive what he has done, then your life is going to be altered. And if your life's not altered, then you've got a major question of where you're going to spend eternity. The celebration of Easter is the intervention of God into humanity's sin, and it's the remedy of man's greatest need, the forgiveness of sin. I was reading this week how many pastors and how many churches today won't even use the word sin in their church and in their, in their, in their sermons, and I guess... I guess it just kind of blows my mind. I didn't grow up like that. I grew up listening to men of God who looked people in the eye and helped them understand that they were sinners and they needed to be saved. And the only salvation that comes is through the cross of Calvary. And I read about all the stuff that's going on in our nation today, in our churches today, and all of a sudden you realize, well, that's what's wrong with us. Where is the preaching of sin? How can you preach redemption if you don't talk about sin? And so what I feel like God wanted me to do over the three weeks at least leading up to that moment where we celebrate the resurrection is to talk about the passion, the death of Christ. That's what we talked about last week. I tried to help us see that sin came from an act in the Garden of Eden, but it wasn't the act. It was the residual effect. It was the lasting condition that came from that act. And it's from that act that we now have a nature that is bent against God. We have a nature that, that doesn't run to God. We have a nature that runs away from God, that runs to sin. Because, dear people, guess what? We like sin. We like to sin. And so our nature that is bent because of the act and the residual effect causes us not to run to God, but to run away from God. Our choices prove our nature, and we have a nature that is against God. And we stand condemned because of our nature against God, and our choices prove our nature. And so last week, we dealt with the death of Christ. We looked, our text was Hebrews chapter 2, and I tried to bring out, and i got to tell you, um, 
not only in this service, but especially in the second service. I, I just, I want to be transparent. I really felt like I didn't connect last week, okay? Um, and so I want to spend a moment in review. Because if you missed what my heart was last week or what I was trying to say last week, uh, maybe this short moment of review will help pour or burn into your heart what I was trying to say. I, I wanted to say last week that the death of Christ did three things for us. His death, first of all, destroyed the power of Satan. Satan became powerless against those who are justified by grace alone. Those who are redeemed, saved by faith alone. The only latitude that Satan has now is what God gives him. And so, first of all, death destroyed the power of Satan. You need to know that if you're a believer. You need to understand that if you've been redeemed by grace, that he has no power over you other than that what God allows him to have for whatever purpose God has to make you more into the person of Jesus Christ that he longed for you to be. I read in my study this week where Martin Luther said that Satan is God's Satan. And that kind of challenged me until I thought through it. You see, death destroyed the power of Satan. Number two, I tried to get over to you last week, that death destroyed the saints from the fear of death. We shouldn't be afraid of death. In fact, there's a sense by which we long for it, you know. We long to be in his presence. We long to see, well, I want to see what he really looks like. I want to know if his hair is long or short. Because I like long hair and I keep having to get it cut short. I'd like to see if Jesus' hair was really that long that the pictures have, huh? So there ought not to be a fear of death for the believer, but also that it, it delivered us from the slavery of sin. Now listen to me. I said last week, and I, I hope you at least got that, that when we sin now, we can't blame that on Satan. We blame it on ourselves. I understand he, he baits the hook. I like to go fishing. The only thing I can do is bait a hook and throw it out there, hope the fish take it. If we sin, it's ourselves to blame because in his death, we've been delivered. We've been delivered, rescued, released. And then number three, I wanted to get across to you this, that Christ's death, defeated sin. We used a term last week in Hebrews, a word propitiation. In Christ's death, he became the propitiation for the sins of God's people. Propitiation shows us that while we were enemies of Christ because of our sin, in his death resulting in justification and forgiveness, we are now reconciled and we are now restored to favor with God all based upon Jesus Christ. Not your efforts. Not your doing the best you can do. Not the fact that you're a church member or a Baptist or a Southern Baptist or an Indian Springs Baptist, whatever that is. You're restored to favor because someone died. His name was Christ. And he died on the cross of Calvary for sin. And because of that, he defeated, amazing, folks, think about it, amazing, that because of divine mercy, we are friends with a holy 
righteous God. Amazing. If you'll, this afternoon, instead of watching basketball, if you'll just sit for a moment, or before you watch basketball, I'm guilty, I'll watch it probably soon. Before you turn it on and watch, why don't you just stop and think for a moment what it really means that because of divine mercy, sinners are now friends with a holy, righteous God. That ought to motivate us on miserable Monday, huh? To have to get up, or at least for some of us, have to get up and go to work, huh? Okay, that was last week. What about the burial? What about the burial? Does the tomb have a part in this redemptive play for the saints? Well, many say, really, no, it's just part of the death-resurrection transition in Christ's passion. Some say, well, there's really no theological significance to the burial. It's just a natural flow. Jesus died and was buried and rose again. But I want to tell you, I beg to differ. I beg to differ, first of all, because the Bible makes it a part of the passion scene. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried. And then he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And so I think it's important theologically that we address the burial and perhaps what that means for us, okay? In fact, this burial was really unusual. The Roman way was to let the body decay on a cross. The Jewish way was to bury criminals. Remember, he was counted as a criminal. So the Jewish way was to bury criminals far outside the city. And yet we find that although he died as a criminal, he was released really not even to his family. He was not to die in a criminal's plot, but he was released to a rich man. And he was placed in a tomb where no one had ever laid to fulfill prophecy given 700 years beforehand, but also to show his innocence. So here's our question. What then can we make of the importance of the burial? Well, I want to take you to John 19, okay? And I want us to talk for a few moments on the last words of Christ on the cross. And I want to address the significance of the burial. In John chapter 19, we are text beginning verse 28 through 30. We'll read in a moment. You know, the Bible records for us that the different writers of the gospel gave to us seven sayings of Christ on the cross. Jesus began with these words, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. By the way, let me give you a little adder. This is what we call chasing rabbits. If Jesus can forgive us on the cross for everything that we did that caused his death, then, beloved, there's no way you cannot forgive others who have harmed you. Okay? You understand that? That's not part of my message, but for some reason, I think I need to say that. Everybody in this room has been hurt by somebody. Everybody. By the way, you've hurt somebody else. Everybody in this room has hurt somebody else, okay? And while I can't do anything about them, I can say to you that in your hurt, if Jesus... Nobody's ever done to you what you have done to Jesus. And then the very first thing he said on the cross is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You should be able to forgive. He then told a criminal that he would be with him in paradise. Preciously, he made preparation for his mother. 
Then we're told by the writers, he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which I believe shows us that God is too pure to look upon sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he that knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Then at the end, Jesus says, I'm thirsty. Then he cries, it is finished. And then Luke adds, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Would you stand for just a few moments? We want to read John 19, and we want to read just three verses today, and then I'll, I'll share with you what God's laid on my heart. Verse 28, John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing all things, had already been accomplished. To fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. Our jar, a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Father, I, I don't pretend to understand everything about this final week of our Lord's life. But God, I tell you, I do understand that when Jesus says it is finished, I understand what that means to me. I understand what it means to most of the people in this room. Maybe not all, but to most of the people in this room. I understand what it means to, according to Scripture. And God, I pray that today, as we take a few moments to think about those three words, which are actually one word, that, God, you'll help me convey what I feel like I'm supposed to, nothing more, nothing less than what I'm supposed to say on this day with these dear, wonderful people. To your glory alone, in Christ's name, amen. All right, thanks. Be seated. It is finished, okay? The word finished is an interesting word. It's a word that means the end. So Jesus could say, it's the end, okay? It's a word which could be translated goal, where Jesus might would say, I have reached my goal. I've accomplished my goal. It's a word that could be translated complete. I've completed what I was supposed to complete. I've done everything I know how to do. Now, we know the Bible tells us that Jesus came to die, but die for what? Or die for whom, perhaps, would be better? What was the mission that he accomplished that would be so complete that our Lord would be placed in a tomb in his burial? Well, often this word, finished, is used in financial transactions. In that day, a payment was made, and payments were made on things, much like today. And then when the debt was resolved, they would take the parchment and they either a stamp or write the word tetelestai, which means paid in full. It'd be stamped on it. The debt was finished. Ever signed up your life to buy a new car? You know? I mean, you go and say, oh, and now, gang, listen, they'll, they'll let you go seven years. When I first started, it was three years. We thought we were dying. Now you can sign up for a car, and by the time you get it paid, your hair's gone or white, and you're 
cheeks that sag down to your gut. I mean, you can spend the rest of your life. But somewhere, if you live long enough, and you make that last payment, I talked to someone this week, said, man, we got one more payment, you know. Well, if you live long enough, somewhere at the end, they're going to they're gonna send you something that's going to say paid in full or finished, okay? The debt is done. That's the idea of this word, okay? Now, when Jesus was placed in the tomb, it signifies two very important transactions. Two very important transactions that had been accomplished. The first is debt, okay? A believer's sin debt was paid by someone who did not know anything. Think about it. A believer's sin debt was paid by someone who did not owe anything. Jesus took the full measure of the demand of the law that showed that you and I were guilty, deserving of hell, and he paid that debt himself so that we would not have to. Someone had to pay. We should have paid. But Jesus said, I will for them. Let's make that personal. I will for Tom. I will for Stacy. I will for Peggy. And Peggy, I love you. I've walked with you for 19 years. I don't know I'd die for you. I don't know. I'd, I'm sure not going to pay off your car, okay? But you see, that's what Jesus did. He paid until he could pay no more. He paid it all. And they placed the payer in the tomb to show that it was done in full measure. If you've been with me for the several years, I'm going to tell you a story I've told before. Uh, just pretend it's the first time you heard it, okay? When, uh, when I surrendered to preach, we had about a three-month period of time before uh, we left to go to seminary. Well, I told my boss that I had surrendered to the ministry and I would be leaving the company. I actually thought he'd let me go. I'd been a, good, a pretty good employee. And I actually thought he would let me go until the moment we moved. And he looked at me and he said, well, Tom, you've been a good employee. This is, I think it was like Wednesday or so. He said, we'll let you finish up on Friday. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got, you know, I got three, I got a house I haven't, you know. And he said, no, it's okay. Just go ahead and go. So he helped me leave, I guess. Is the, well, anyway, I, I was playing on the men's softball team. I was younger and skinnier. And so I was playing on the men's softball team, but I lost my job, lost my insurance. And so uh, I was playing second base, and somebody hit a ball, and I couldn't get to it, so I dove. When I dove, I fell on my thumb, and I cracked my thumb. And I knew it was cracked. You know, you can tell when things break. And so they took me to the doctor, and, you know, they x-rayed it. And the guy said, yeah, it's broke. And, of course, I was thinking, oh, gee, how am I going to pay for this? It's going to take a lot of surgery. And he messed with it a while, and I still got a bump. He, he pushed it back in place, and as he was fixing my thumb and getting wrapping it up, he said, well, he said, I, you know, you have insurance that will cover that. And I said, oh, well, you know, I used to have insurance that would cover it. And he looked at me and said, what do you mean? I said, well, here's the deal, Doc. I don't have any insurance. He, he stopped fixing my thumb. And I said, but I always pay my bills. He said, how? I said, well, I'm not sure yet. He said, what's going on? And so I told him, you know, that's rendered for each and that uh, I was 
Give me golf seminar. But I said, I, I always pay my bills. So anyway, he finished up, and he filled out the paper, wrote something on there, and he handed it to me. He said, uh, take this to the front desk. So as I got ready to leave, I grabbed it, looked at it, and he had written across, paid in full. And I, I don't know if the guy was Christian or not, uh, but I, I stopped and I said, Doc, I, I always pay my bills. He said, son, what you're doing is more important than what I'm doing. Just take it and go. See, that's the idea about this debt thing. I owed a doctor for a broken thumb. He didn't break that thumb. I broke that thumb. I broke it because I was a bad athlete, okay? But I incurred the debt. It was mine. And so here's a guy that had no place in the debt, the making of the debt, reaching out to pay my debt. And I went to the front counter, and I handed it to the lady. She didn't know what was going on, and she looked at me and smiled, and she says, it's been paid. You're free to go. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? For someone to pay another's debt, especially when that person had no part in accumulating the debt, and especially that the debt is so large, the only recourse is death. But you see, that's what the substitutionary death of Christ means. We should have paid. He paid. And we go free on the account of his payment. The tomb represents for us that it's been paid and paid in full. Second thing it represents is not just debt, but glory. You see, the tomb shows that the finality of God's demand of payment of sin, yours and my sin, be paid and be satisfied. And it was satisfied in Christ, and God was satisfied by Christ. He was satisfied by the work of his son. Oh, people, listen. God is love. He is love. This is the greatest expression of love. But gang, listen to me. God is holy. And God is righteous. And God is just. He is a God of justice. And his wrath against sin must be satisfied by someone. The law shows that. The law demands it. And it was the precious son, the law keeper, the law completer that satisfied these demands. No greater love than the love of the Lord Jesus. No greater love than the love of God to slay his son on a cross because he gave his very best and his son took the very best because of sinners like Tom, like you like us. And there was glory in that. The whole story of the passion shows that Christ took the full measure of heaven's wrath against sin and when completed they placed him in a tomb because there was no more to give. He gave us all. No more to take. 
He took God's wrath completely, and God was satisfied. And I hope this morning, those two thoughts about the burial, those two thoughts about the tomb will grab your heart. It is finished, he said. He set out to do and he completed, dear people, what he set out to do. Now, I want to I read you something that I wrote, okay? And I, I want to be careful that I read it right, so I'm going to stick my nose in my notes. But I want you to listen to me because I think it's very important that you get it, okay? He did what he set out to do. His atonement for sin was not potential, and it was not universal. It was efficacious, and it was effective for his people. It was not general, so it could happen. It was particular because it did happen. And not one of his sheep will ever be lost. The atonement of the Lord Jesus is limited to those who believe. And my question for you today, do you believe? Do you understand your nature that is against God? That your nature is opposed to God? <clears throat> that your nature wants to run your own way? And God interrupted your life. And he died on that cross for you. And the atonement is limited to those who understand their sinners. And have repented of their sin. And have faith Christ. Don't you ever think? That Jesus died on the cross and was buried so that you can go on in your sin sinning so that at the end, somehow, God will make it okay. Beloved, that's universalism and that is heresy. And many people think today that it's so, that's the way it's going to be. That at the end of it all, it's just going to turn out okay. And because God is nothing but a God of love, they, dis, dis, or they set aside the righteousness and holiness of God that it's going to be okay. But that's wrong. What he did, he did, he accomplished it, and he accomplished it for his people. And the question is, are you his people? How sad to realize at the end that you were all wrong about salvation. How sad to realize at the end you are all wrong about redemption. I've said to you before, eternity is a long time to get it wrong. Eternity, eternity. When I was a little boy, I would go out at night. We lived out in Oregon and and I would go out at night and I'd sit on a hill and I would just look up at the stars and I would wonder, how, how far is that star? What ha what's on the other side of that star, on that star? And I would think it would just go on and it goes on and it goes on. Even then, God had put in my heart this idea of eternity, the massiveness, incomprehensibility of God. As a little boy, I would think about eternity. We're so hung up on this life. we born and we die and that's it. But... There's eternity. It goes on. It goes on. It goes on. It goes on. How sad to get it wrong. Huh? It is finished. It's really just one word in the original. 
It's written in a way that has lasting significance. In other words, I'll say it this way. It is finished, will always be finished, for those who belong to God through Christ. The burial proves there is nothing more to give. And the burial proves there's nothing more to take. And so the question is, is it finished for you? I wrote up on the board there on the screen. We don't call them boards anymore. Or chalkboards. I'm not going after screens now. Closure. I'll tell you a story. When Mama died, my mother was sick for a long time in the bed for years with Alzheimer's. And uh, when Mama died, they, uh, they basically, the family said, well, you make all those decisions. So I sat down with the funeral home, and I, I said to the guy, I said, I, I don't want to, we don't want the casket open. I said, that, that, that doesn't look like my mama. That's not who she was. You can't see her smile. She can't sing Amazing Grace, and that was her song. In fact, doctors, she was a nurse, doctors, and Elder Reddy used to call her Amazing Grace. She always had a smile and a song. And I said, that's not my mama. And I said, I don't want the casket open. And the guy who was the head of the funeral home down in El Dorado was really a nice guy. And he set me down. He said, Tom, can I talk to you? And he said, you know, why don't, would you give us the honor of working on her a little bit? We have your pictures. Would you give us the privilege of seeing what we could do with your mother? And so I said, yeah, I don't know that it's going to change anything. And he said, well... Thank you. Let us try. And so they took a day or two, and uh, he called me in. He said, uh, come with me. And I walked in, and I saw my mother, and it looked like mom. All those years of the disease had so ravaged her. Somehow they made it, they made it work. And I looked at her, and I said, oh, People need to see this mother of mine who's so precious. And so we had an open casket service. I told him later, I said, you know, thank you for that. I said, uh, I've done a lot of funerals and, and things. And, and uh, he said, well, he said, Tom, I thank you for sharing, being kind to us. But he said, you know, there's something about closure. Something about closure. Dear people, your Lord, if you're a believer, your Lord died the most horrendous death. There was never a death like a crucifixion. And leading up to the crucifixion, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament, he was marred beyond human reckoning. He didn't look like a human being. Beaten, scourged, crown of thorns in his head, naked he hung, because you're a sinner. Because I'm a sinner. And after the beating, terrible, terrible crucifixion. I can just see in my mind how they nailed his hands and feet and lifted up and with a thud dropped him into the hole and how it must have jarred every joint. And then the trying to breathe that began to take place until he gave up his life. They didn't take it. And you and I need closure of that. We know he died for our sin, paid the full measure. 
But I believe the reason the burial is put in 1 Corinthians 15 is because we need closure. We need to know that what he gave was enough and what God extracted was sufficient. You see, God killed his son for people like you and people. I understand Rome's part. I understand the Jewish part. I've studied all that. I'm telling you, God killed his boy because somehow in the eternal plans of God before God ever created the world, the Godhead decided that there would be sin and sin needed to be atoned for. And the only recourse was the son. There had to be closure. And there was. And the burial of Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, the burial of Jesus Christ is closure. And I'll add one little tidbit. It's there that begins the transition that we'll talk about next week into life forevermore. The burial has theological significance, not just practical significance, theological significance to those limited by faith in Christ alone. Particular atonement for the believers, the sheep, and he never loses a one. So the question is, are you one? Are you? Has it made an impact in your life? Has it changed the way you think, the way you act? Has it changed the way you feel, your heart? Well, that's it. Let's pray. We're going to have just a moment.